next week, we will not be meeting. We will be having breakfast in here at 9 o'clock. Okay, breakfast in here at 9 o'clock. The week after that, August 8th, we'll be back together and we'll be beginning School of the Word at what time? 9 o'clock. Now, that means this, not for y'all. Y'all are here. That means this, for them for thems who cannot simply get here for 8, we're hoping that 9 o'clock will be able to be more opportune for them so that they will be able to get up and come on in to be with us, right? Not yet, no. We won't be doing 9 o'clock. We're going to see how we're moving along first and then... Uh, we didn't want to jump too fast, too many, and then, you know. However, that isn't to deny people who want to come before nine to pray. Obviously, you know, that is not a restriction we're putting on anyone. All right, well, let's go ahead and continue. <clears throat> Last week, you remember what we learned, that the words monogenes weos. Everybody knows what that means now, monogenes weos. It's the translation in several passages, the most well-known is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Monogenes weos, only begotten son. And so remember we saw that illustrated. What does that mean? Does that mean that God had a son like a human dad has a human son? That God created this son? Is that what it means? And that's what it sounds like it means, and that's what it means to the natural mind. But the word monogeneus, the way it's used here, is not used that word way. It's a word mono only, and then genus doesn't mean uh, uh, natural begetting. It means unique, unique, one of a kind, one of a class. And so we saw that illustrated, you remember, in Genesis chapter 12, what verse, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 22, what verses? Two and what? Twelve, remember that? What was the illustration? The Lord appears to Abraham. Now remember, when God appears to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, what has transpired? Abraham has a son by Hagar whose name is Ishmael. He has a son. This is Abraham's natural-born son. But Sarah hasn't conceived and have a son. And so later on, you remember in chapter 18, the Lord appears, and he promises Sarah to have a son. I'm not sure if I'll talk about this later on in the class. Sometimes I get ahead of myself. But anyway, and she has a son, and they call his name Isaac. And so by the time we come to chapter 22, Isaac is, I don't know, 20 years old. He's not this little 10-year-old boy that you see in paintings. He's about a 20-year-old fellow. And the Lord appears to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, take your, take your son, your only son. Now, when he says only son, does God know that Abraham has two sons? Yes. And so when he says only son, 
In the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the word monogenes is used. Only son, monogenes weos. Or uh, sometimes the word monogenes is pronounced monogamous, so whatever. And so when he says that, he knows that we're talking to a man who has two sons. So in effect, he says, take your son, your unique son. Well, this hasn't communicated yet to Abraham, right? My unique son. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Well, we could still be talking about Ishmael. I mean, Abraham loves Ishmael. Then finally, the capstone is put on it. The fourth descriptive is what? The Lord calls the son Isaac. Take him and take him to the land of Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. You remember that. And then in verse 12, the Lord appears to Abraham as he is about to plunge a dagger into the chest of his son, his unique son. And he says, you know, I now have seen that you will not withhold your son, your only son, your unique son. Now, again, what does the word unique apply to? It applies to the uniqueness that God has placed upon Isaac as to the eternal purpose of God. The uniqueness of Isaac is illustrated. You remember we went through about seven or eight illustrations last week. You remember that? He was announced, his birth was announced by angel. Uh, it was a miraculous birth, remember, because Sarah could not conceive. And here she is, a 90-year-old lady. The daddy's like a, what, a 100-year-old man. So, okay. So we went through the uniqueness of the physical uniqueness, the natural uniquenesses here. But the real uniqueness here that God is, is, is typifying in the natural issues is his spiritual uniqueness. The uniqueness of this boy, this son, as to the eternal purpose of God. That's Isaac's uniqueness. He is the one through whom God will bring about his eternal purpose to be fulfilled in another son. So in this son, Isaac is pictured or foreshadowed or typified God's unique son. Do you, are we following what we're talking about in here this morning as we go through this? The Old Testament is all about God foreshadowing, promising, foreshadowing, giving illustrations of one son. The identity and the ministry of just one son. So you can say in a way, and I think we mentioned this last week, that the Old Testament and the New is about this issue of sonship. Everything God does is about sonship. Everything that God will do, has done, is about the issue of sonship. Not sonship in the general sense, although it is but sonship in the specific sense of his own unique son to be manifested then and fulfilled in his sons. And I'm beginning to get ahead of myself, so let me slow down. 
So this week we'll begin to look at the evidence and the purpose of this unique son in the Old Testament. Remember what we said. Anything and everything that is done and said and explained and promised and fulfilled in the New Testament must have its origin where? Where? In the old. If it isn't in the old in some way, then what we see in the new is not of God. Everything that is in the new is simply the fulfillment of everything that is prophesied, promised, typified, foreshadowed, hinted at in the old. So let's go ahead through this. In Genesis 1.26, you remember that verse? Genesis 1.26, God states his purpose for creating humanity. I've said this before and I'll say it continually. The greatest, in my mind, the greatest and most significant verse in the entire Bible, the most awe-inspiring, breathtaking verse in the entire Bible is Genesis 1.1. Why? Because everything that is talked about, promised, everything that happens is the result of Genesis 1-1. So when we talk about the cross, when we talk about the resurrection, these are incredible, incredible works. But they are all incredible because they are the fulfillment of what God purposed in Genesis 1-1. Without, obviously, Genesis 1-1, there wouldn't be anything. And so everything that passes or comes after Genesis 1-1 is a is the result of 1-1. One, 1-1 one. One, one is the foundation, is the soil. And so in Genesis 1:26, remember, God states why I'm doing what I'm doing. I've created, remember, the five days, and we're in the middle of the sixth day or whatever, by Genesis 1:26, And the Lord says, oh, let me explain to you what I'm doing here. Why am I creating? And he says, let us make man. What? In our image after our likeness. So the words image and likeness begin to be a visible explanation, expression of the creator. Do we see that? The words image and likeness are two words that describe the expression, the visible explanation, the demonstration of this creator who began it in Genesis 1-1. So God creates humanity. So what is our purpose on earth? Genesis 1-26 is our purpose on earth. Everything about us is contained now in Genesis 1-26. Why did God do Genesis 1-1? To get to Genesis 1-26. Everything after is the outworking and the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose as stated in Genesis 1-26 and 27, as we'll see. So the purpose is stated in 126. Then in verse 28, the Lord shows that his image will be expressed through sonship. How is God going to manifest his image and his likeness in humanity? It's going to be through sonship. By the way, let me make a, a quick comment. In today's world, there is so much misemphasis on things that should not be misemphasized. This issue of gender. You know what I'm talking about, about elevating one group over the other. God doesn't do that. 
That's all the enemy's work in the world. So when the Bible uses son, it is talking more less about gender than it is about what? Relationship. Do we get that? So we should not say sonship and daughtership. We should not say that. Although some in the church are saying, that's what you should do. Conclude the women. The women and the men both are absolutely, completely included in the word son or sonship. Amen? So let us not fall for the foolishness and the lies of the enemy in this world system that we have. And so how is sonship going to be expressed? How is the image going to be expressed? Through sonship. Let me just read part of verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, what does that obviously imply? To be fruitful and multiply means what? To have kids. In that word means that you're going to have boys and girls together, male and female together. But it's captured, you see, in the word sonship. That's why I'm saying it that way. This means that God's enduring purpose in Genesis 1-1, why Genesis 1-1? That God would have many sons, we see that in Hebrews 2-10, who would be, as I've said before, the corporate expression of this God. That in a people, God's nature His Trinitarian nature and his character, his moral character, especially more, I suppose, I shouldn't say more than anything else, but especially the love that exists among the three persons of the Trinity and how they relate and how they work together and how they are in unity. This is what God's people are to be expressing in the corporate gathering of the church. So, what happens? God creates Adam and Eve. Then Genesis 3, 6. Remember what happens in Genesis 3, 6? Eve is shown the fruit. Remember that? And she sees it. What? Hey, hey, I like this. I bet it's great to taste. It looks great. It's going to make me wise and all that. Satan has already told her, you shall be like God. And so she takes a bite of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's verse 6. But then it says... Adam is where? Where is Adam when she's taking a bite of this? Where is there? Right next to her, right with her. He's with her. And the last three words, what? And he ate. When he ate, sin came into the world. Sin does not come into the world when she ate. The Bible explicitly says sin came into the world through one man's disobedience. Remember, we see that in Romans 5. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. She was deceived. Adam sinned. So all of God's purpose, 126, is if you would, off the table, if you would. So what has to happen? God is not surprised. Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, as I have purposed, so it will stand. So what happens? When sin comes into the world, is God surprised? No. Is he ready for it? Yes. He already knows on the other side what he's going to do. In fact, before 
the world is created. The Son of God, you remember the Word of God creating the world. Before the Son of God began to speak, let there be light. Before the Word of God went forth to create, he knew that he would be giving himself in the incarnation to die on the cross as a result of paying for our sins. He knew that when he began to create. This is not something that he came to later on. So God's purpose would not be accomplished through Adam. God's purpose is not going to be accomplished through Adam, but through a unique son. As a result of sin, God will send another son through whom he will redeem his people for the fulfillment of his purpose so that he may have many sons in glory. So another son will come. Adam is God's uniquely created son. The rest of the sons come through the natural means of propagation. But then another son must come because Adam sins. And this son is a unique son in every sense of the word. Therefore, the need of the creation. God has to have another son, but he's ready for this. So God so loved the world that he gave his unique son. Remember, he gave his only begotten son, that he gave his unique son to save his many sons who would become partakers of the divine nature. Remember, Second Peter 1, 4, in order to corporately express his unique son. So on the earth, God will have a unique people who will be the living expression of his unique son. Do we see that? That's what the church is all about. We are going to be, we are today, a unique people. We are spiritually as unique as the Son of God is. And in that context, we are the only ones, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, etc., to be able to uniquely express the uniqueness of God's Son. For the glory of the Father. And why do I emphasize this? Because I really feel that as moving through this, when we begin to look at Old Testament quotes and, and scriptures about a son, a son, a son, we're not, as we typically do as believers, thinking about one man. Isn't that how we typically do it? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. How many of us think one person? Don't we think singularly, Kenny? Don't you think Jesus singularly? Now, that's true in one sense, <clears throat> but we want to begin to see these promises, not just singularly as contained in one man, one child being born, but in this one child being born, God is birthing a nation, a people. He is birthing the church. Amen. That's what we want to see in this son. So when we look at these prophecies, our understanding is more from God's perspective than from a human earthly perspective. So at the birth of Jesus, God is not just seen, hey, my son, my eternal son has now taken on humanity and has been conceived and is being, has been born through Mary. Certainly God sees that. But God's view is much larger than that. His view that in this one son is the fulfillment of his eternal purpose 
and his eternal purpose is that he will have a people in whom he is corporately expressed. Are we getting this? Are we? Yes or no? I need to know whether you're getting it. Once again, when we read the Old Testament and we look at promises about a son, and we'll see several. We see promises about a Messiah. We see promises about an eternal king. We see promises about a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We see these awesome promises of this unique person in whom these various ministerial activities, Messiah, priest, king, are accomplished or fulfilled in this one man. We also must see the church, God's people, is in that man. Amen? We must see ourselves there, if you would, relationally, not physically. So this is why we read, for instance, in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God works all things for the good, what? For those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he did what? He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, his unique son. Why? So that this unique son, so that in him would be the, that he would be the firstborn of many brethren, of many sons. You see what the apostle Paul is given to say in Romans eight twenty nine by the Holy Spirit. God has told him, this is it. This son, that we will be conformed to this son. And who is this son? He is the image of God. And the ministry that he's come to do is to bring many sons to glory. So that in this son, there is a company of people. So with this in mind, let's turn our attention to some of the Old Testament prophecies. That promise the unique son who will be the firstborn of many sons. Again, every mention of this son is not just a mention of one person, but in God's economy, it is a mention of an entire people who will be corporately expressing his image. Where's the original promise of a son given? You may look at your notes, but would you have known it before? Where is the first announcement that a unique son is coming? Genesis 3.15. I've told you before, in the first three chapters of Genesis is contained everything in the Bible. In the first three chapters of Genesis, everything is contained in the Bible. Right? Everything is there. So let's look at it. You remember what happened? Adam and Eve have fallen and the Lord walks into the garden. And the first call of the gospel is, in my mind anyway, Adam where are you? Now, God knows where they are. You know that. I mean, when your mom and them are looking for you and you're hiding and they know where you are, but they say, where y'all? They want you to say, we over here. They know. They just want y'all to say where they are. The first call of the gospel, where are you? And then he begins to question Adam. What have you done? How many of you parents know that when your child does something, you knew it, but you ask anyway? How many, has, have any of us ever done that? Ask the question, what's going on here? And so the Lord pronounces a curse. And here's the curse he's 
pronounces in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity. Do you know what enmity means? Hostility, enemy, opposition. We're against one another. I will put enmity between your seed. He's talking to Satan in verse 3.15. Between your seed and the woman's seed or her seed. He, who? The seed of the woman. Who's he? The seed of the woman. This boy that will be born to a woman. This son who will be given this unique son who will be given through the birth of a woman. This son, you will bruise on as to his, I'm sorry, I did get it wrong. Yes, he will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. You're going to strike him and bruise him and wound him. He's going to be wounded. What does Isaiah 53 say? He was wounded for what? Our transgressions. But he is going to bruise you or crush you as to your head. Why does the Lord say as to your head on the head? Because it's the place of authority, of leadership. So there's going to be enmity. This son is going to be hurt. But in his being hurt, you will be crushed. There's a son coming who will be a deliverer. Who will deliver God's people out from underneath the control and the domination and the incarceration of sin and bring them into the freedom of God's kingdom. And then in verse 21, we see how this son will deliver these many people. How will he do it? What does the Lord do? He takes Adam and Eve who have put fig leaves on themselves and he does what? He clothes them with skins of an animal. Now, do any of us know that when you skin an animal, it bleeds? I mean, Donnie, have you ever skinned an animal? You, you're a hunter, aren't you? Does it bleed? Is blood shed when you skin an animal? Yes or no? Plenty blood. So this is the shedding of the blood. How will this seed bruise or crush the enemy as to his authority? How will he do it? Through the shedding of his blood. So you see, the whole gospel is right here. The atonement is right here in verses 315 and verse 21 showing how it's going to be done. This is what this unique son is going to do. The rest of the Old Testament is a progressive revelation of the appearing of this promised son, this seed of the woman. Now, after this, we move forward, remember, through all those generations of these people who live very long lives. You remember that. And then we finally go through Noah, the flood, and so on. We come to chapter 12 of Genesis. And there was a man and a woman living in the Ur of the Chaldees, in the Chaldean area of the world, in Mesopotamia. And their names are Abram and Sarai. And in chapter 12, we see Yahweh, the Lord of glory, appearing to Abram. And he says, get up and leave your country. Go to a land that I will show you. Now, look what he says. He's talking about sonship. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. And I will make you a great nation. Now, how do you become a great nation? You must have sons. You must have children. In those days, you have to have sons. So there's a promise immediately of sons. Now, when he says, I will make you a great nation... 
Why is he promising Abraham this? I've heard so many people talk about it, but they don't associate it with the essential promise. Why has God appeared to Abram or Abraham and promised that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you? That you're going to be the father of a great nation. Why is God giving this promise to Abram? Where is this promise first stated? Genesis 1, 26-28. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And verse 28 says what? Be fruitful and multiply. And when you're saying be fruitful and multiply, you're saying there's going to be a nation. You're going to have a whole lot of folks. You're going to have a real big family. And you see, why does God appear to Abraham? Why does he establish his covenant with Abraham? Because the covenant that he established with Adam in in Genesis has been broken. But God's eternal purpose will be continued. And so what God is doing here, he is fulfilling his eternal purpose specifically now in a man in whom a nation will be brought forth, and that nation will be his unique people upon the earth. And in that nation will be, by seed form, his unique son. Do you see what's going on here? And so I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and one who curses you, I will curse. And in you... In you, in your loins, inside of you, there is a seed, the seed of the woman. There is a son inside of you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Where were any of us a hundred years ago? We were in our great, 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 whatever it is, grandfather. Can you receive that? Everybody understand that? We were in him in seed form, in potential form, correct? Right? And so in Abraham is the nation of Israel, and specifically is this seed or this woman, I'm sorry, this son who will be given. How do we know this son's identity? Well, Paul tells us that in Galatians 3. But at any rate, therefore... In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we see that sonship is God's means of producing many sons. I'm emphasizing this because I think too often when we talk about Jesus and we talk about the promise and we talk about the Son of God and we talk about all that, we don't do it in relation to sonship. We do it in relation to a single man, and God never has had a single person in mind. He's had always a corporate identity that is going to be manifested in one son. He's always had that. So we have to expand our understanding and see that this is God's purpose from the very beginning. A corporate people, us, we, the church. So where were we when God was saying to Abraham, in you, the nations will be blessed? Where were we spiritually or potentially? Where were we? Spiritually where? In Abraham. That promise that was given to Abraham, we are the fruit of that promise. We are the fruit of Genesis 126. 
Then from Isaac will come two sons. You remember that? In 22.12, when the Lord says, through Isaac, I will bless. Abraham, you're the initial one that I'm giving this promise to because of my initial promise in Genesis 1.26. And I'm going to bring it to pass beginning in you. And then in your son, and it will continue down. The promise will continue down, and we'll see how it works out a little bit. So then from Isaac comes two sons. What are the names? Esau and Jacob. Who was the firstborn? Esau. Now, and then Jacob right after. The standard way of doing things in those days is called the law of primogenitor. In other words, the firstborn son is the one who inherits. That's the way it's done in these countries. The firstborn son, you get it all. You get the blessing. You get the family honor. You get it all. Everybody else, well, whatever. Correct? That's the way it's done. So Esau and Jacob are born. So in order for this son, this promised seed to continue, it, Isaac is the dad through whom it's going to continue. And then Isaac, remember, they have two children, Esau and Jacob, through whom naturally would be the monogamous weos. Who would be the typically the unique son, it would be typically the firstborn son, Esau. This is the standard way of doing it. You remember this stuff about the birthright and so on with Esau? You remember that. <clears throat> then Jacob is given, to Jacob is given this uniqueness to Jacob. Now, he connives and everything else, but he's, <laughs> he's, Walking out the will of God. Now, there's a mystery there. But Jacob is the unique son. Why is he the unique son? Because he wasn't supposed to get the blessing. In the natural sense. But God had decreed eternally that Jacob would be the one through whom the seed or the promise would continue. He is unique in that respect. He's going to receive the Father's blessing in that respect. He's unique. Then to Jacob, 12 sons are born. Remember that? And then, so we have 12 fellows here. All of them are the product of sonship. All of them will participate in this blessing of God as a nation. Each one of these sons, they will have many, many sons, and the nation of Israel will be birthed. But there will be one son in the midst who will be that unique son. And that unique son will come through Judah. Remember the tribe of Judah. Remember this in Genesis 49, 10. Jacob is dying, and he gathers all of his sons around him. And to each son, he begins to give a blessing. And then when it comes to Judah, this is part of the blessing. I'm only lifting out... This verse, because this is the verse that is significant. And he says to Judah, the scepter. What is a scepter? It is a symbol of authority and rule. The scepter. It's a symbol of authority and rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So what does that mean? In some way, Judah will be the tribe in which God's rule and authority 
is expressed. Do we see that? The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh comes. Have you ever heard that? Now, what is Shiloh? What is he saying here? Does anybody know what Shiloh means? It means he whose right it is. There will be coming out of Judah a man, a son, who will be given the right to take the scepter that is given to the tribe of Judah. And this one son shall be the one who shall rule with authority, but he will come from the tribe of Judah. Do you see the promise of sonship, a, a unique son coming down through the ages? Do we see that? So what does that mean? That someone in the tribe of Judah will be a king, a ruler, whose authority has been given to him by God uniquely. And this is the one who will fulfill Genesis 3.15. He will crush you as to your head. His authority through his death will destroy the authority of Satan at the cross. Many years later, you remember, Israel has become, gone into Egypt and become captive in Egypt. Do you remember this? Did you see the movie? Now, who, what, who was this nation to God, these people to God, these slaves? Who are these people? These are the children of Abraham. These are the descendants of Isaac. These are the children of Jacob. Do you remember that? And so now we have a group of people, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these people. And how does God relate to them or call them? What does he call them in Exodus chapter 4? He's telling what? Moses, he says, he, let me say this. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. So what is he talking about here? Is he talking about his son by natural birth? Or is he talking about son uniquely drawn spiritually and relationally to God? He's talking about a relation to God. This is sonship as it is expressed in unique relationship. So God has upon the earth, finally, when we come to Exodus, we see God has a nation that is to be corporately expressing himself. And in this nation is a man who will come forth from this nation to be the one who will save all of God's people. Do we see how sonship, this promise is working out? In Hosea 11, 1, the Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, you may remember that, that uh, promise is also uh, stated in Matthew. So, remember Genesis 1, and 5, 3. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You remember Genesis 1, Now, if you look at 5, 3, Adam and Eve have two sons. Remember what the first two sons are called? Cain and Abel. Cain, you remember, rises up against Abel because his offering is accepted and Cain's isn't. You remember the story, chapter 4. Then Cain kills Abel. As a result of that, let's look at what chapter 5 says in verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 3. And Adam became the father of a son whose name is Seth. You remember Seth. 
in his own likeness according to his image. And so what we have here is this. We understand that God, that to God, Israel is God's corporate son. Israel is to be the expression corporately of God's image and of God's likeness. Are we following the pattern? Are we following the pattern? And today the church is also called to be corporately expressing God's image and his likeness. However, Israel, God's corporate son, like Adam, God's created son, failed in his duty as God's son. Remember that? Israel failed, just like Adam failed. And why did Israel fail? Well, if you ever want to have a good read, this is what happened. Second Kings 17, from verse 7 all the way, I think it's to about verse 44. Now, this came about, this destruction of the northern kingdom and then Judah. Remember that, the Babylonian Empire. Because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. So what we've done this morning is just to try to give some overview and how sonship works out, how it's promised, how it begins to flow from generation to generation. And in all of this, there is one son uniquely that is going to be God's image. Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image of God. And we are in him, so we are his image bearers, but he is his image. And we are taking on the image of God as to his nature and as to his character, but not as to his divinity. We are taking on that image as we are in Christ to be the expression on earth as Christ is in the heavens. There is a heavenly man in the heavens who fully expresses the image of God. Amen. And there is on the earth to be the expression of that man on the earth. And that will happen fully and finally in the new heavens and the new earth. Correct? So we'll see Emmanuel, God with us, relationally as one. So next week, 9 o'clock, we'll be in here to eat. Then the week after that, everybody who has difficulty at 8 o'clock getting up will be back at 9 o'clock so everybody can come on back. So thank you for being here.